Welcome to Episode 7 of Economics Supplied On Demand, a podcast brought to you by the Economic Society of Australia to discuss economic affairs of the time. I'm Erin Stone and I'm the Vice President of the West Australian Branch. In this episode, we bring you a recording of the 2020 Ted Evans Public Policy Lecture, a partnership between ESA Queensland, the University of Queensland, the Queensland University of Technology and Griffith University. This year, we heard from Professor Ian Harper on the human dimension of good economic policymaking. In this lecture, Ian Harper discusses the ways in which his own approach to good economic policymaking has been shaped by keeping one eye on how the policy advice translates into the lives of ordinary people. This lecture draws on his extensive policy experience in financial regulation, wages policy and competition policy, and most recently, monetary policy during the pandemic. Thanks also to the Queensland branch of the Economic Society of Australia, University of Queensland, Queensland University of Technology, and Griffith University for making this event possible and for inviting me to deliver this year's Ted Evans Public Policy Lecture. It's an honour to succeed my esteemed professional colleagues, Karen Chester and Vince Fitzgerald, who have each delivered an earlier lecture in this series. When I began working on this speech, I looked forward to delivering it in front of Ted and his wife, Judith. But of course, that's no longer possible, Ted having passed away uh, in April this year, as Julian pointed out. No doubt everyone here tonight was saddened by this news and joins me in extending our sympathies to Judith and the wider Evans family. As we remember Ted tonight, his extraordinary life and prodigious contribution to our nation's welfare, I'll take the opportunity to share some personal memories of him, as well as some reflections on the ways he helped to shape my own thinking and career as a policy economist. My first encounter with Ted Evans occurred when I joined what was then called the Joint Economic Forecasting Group uh, in the early 1980s. Ted chaired JEFCA, as it was called, which comprised economists from Treasury, Prime Minister and Cabinet, and the Reserve Bank, and was responsible for agreeing official forecasts of the major economic aggregates. I had joined the RBA as a newly minted PhD economist from ANU in early 1983, just prior to the election of the first Hawke government. And one of my jobs was to head the bank's forecasting team. Hence it fell to me to fly to Canberra from Sydney several times a year to present the bank's forecasts and to defend them in front of the customary onslaught from Treasury and PM&C colleagues uh, who brought their own numbers to the table. Needless to say, the different forecasts would be vigorously debated. Professional pride was at stake after all, I was under strict instructions, tongue in cheek, I'm sure, uh, but it didn't sound like it at the time, to come back with our numbers or not to bother coming back at all. I remember thinking to myself at the time, how could anyone get steamed up about the difference between 3.1 and 3.2%? 
uh, but they did. During all this toing and froing, Ted would maintain a dignified and studied distance, quietly observing the fray. Occasionally, if the momentum started to flag, he might toss something into the middle, just to spark up the discussion. Ted was especially good at asking provocative or wholly unexpected questions. And then quite suddenly, without warning, he would simply say, thank you, I think we have our number, let's make it 3.2. And that was the end of the discussion. I might have made it sound like Ted was an imposing figure, but of course this would be the very opposite of the truth. He was quietly spoken, unassuming in his manner, yet nonetheless decisive when the moment for decision arrived. His leadership of the group reflected universal respect for his experience and judgment. Ted had no need for bombast or force of personality. What I learned at those meetings was to take the numbers more seriously than I had before. I hadn't been trained as an applied macroeconomist. Until then, I'd been more interested in theoretical concepts and the underlying mechanics of things. It was a shock to wind up at the bank and see just how much attention was paid to the numbers. And then to be sent off down to Treasury only to discover that they too took the numbers seriously, possibly even more so. Part of me was thinking, well, why would you bother? We all know forecasting is an inexact science and that the forecasts are almost always wrong. So why invest so much time and energy? I came away with a newfound respect for the intellectual effort my colleagues invested in trying to get the numbers right. They did it because they knew when they went to the government, the minister was going to ask them, well, are we going to have a recession or aren't we? Where are we headed anyway? And they knew that the minister was about to make decisions that would affect every person in the country. When you're in that situation, it's incumbent upon you to give the best advice you can. Even if in your heart of hearts, you know that it's an inexact science. It's also important to give that same advice whichever way the prevailing political winds are blowing. Here too, Ted was a master of our craft. Perhaps where his natural reserve and deliberate manner had their greatest impact in delivering advice to ministers they might simply not want to hear. Whoever coined the phrase frank and fearless advice must have known Ted well and observed him in action. Good economic policy making requires the best possible economic advice. The reason why good economists put so much effort into their policy advice is that they know the policies eventually adopted will affect people's lives, for better or worse. Economic policies cannot be guaranteed to improve people's lives, even if they are faithfully implemented by governments. But when you know that people's material living standards are at stake, it focuses the mind of a good policy economist on giving the best possible economic advice or at least it ought to. Economists of Ted Evans' generation instinctively knew this. Perhaps it was the hardships of the Second World War that were too raw in their experience to overlook. At least Ted was not alone in remembering 
that the end result of good economic policy advice has an all too human face. It's something that economists in each generation should be taught and never forget. Often the advice economists give isn't popular, either with their political masters or the general public or both. This is where the concept of giving good advice in and out of season comes to the fore. When you're delivering advice to a politician, the response can sometimes be blunt. This is the advice you're giving me? It's all very well for you, but you're not the one who has to face the public. And the answer to that is, yes, Minister, I understand that. Uh, but with respect, Minister, you've been elected to make these decisions. My job is to give you the best advice on the likely economic outcomes one way or the other. And I believe I've done just that. Economists are not elected officials. Their job is to give their best advice to the people who make the decisions. Even if it might not be popular on a given day, uh, or worse, require those same decision makers to take a principled stand. One of the most remarkable instances of this in my experience was the resignation of John Stone, one of Ted's predecessors as Treasury Secretary. John had argued staunchly against the floating of the Australian dollar, leading up to the Hawke government's decision to do just that in December of 1983. Having had his advice rejected by Treasurer Paul Keating on such a fundamental matter of economic policy as the exchange rate mechanism, Stone resigned. He explained his thinking in the Shan Memorial Lecture delivered in Perth the following year to a rapt audience of which I had the privilege of being a member. In his lecture, John went through the arguments as to why he personally opposed floating the exchange rate and why Treasury had opposed it under his leadership. As I sat there in the crowd, I thought how courageous he was to have held to that advice, even when it was clear the political, not to mention professional winds, were blowing strongly in the other direction. I was deeply impressed. Now, I think history has shown that John Stone was on the wrong side of that debate, but he wasn't stubbornly or obviously wrong at the time. His arguments were carefully thought through. It just turned out that the issues he was concerned about had less of, a, of an impact than he had expected. As I've said, forecasting is an inexact science. None of us gets every or even any prediction right. But it's important to resist being pushed one way or the other when you've got good grounds for holding to your point of view. It's important to hold firm, not just for the sake of it, but so you can put a cogent argument on the table. Here are the reasons I'm against this. The best decisions are made by people who can clearly see all of the arguments for and against a certain course of action. Putting forward a strong and well-considered point of view gives the other side something to push against. It encourages them to double check their assumptions and consider a wider range of potential outcomes. The end result is that more and better information is put on the table. To get there, you need to be fearless and consistent 
in putting forward your concerns. I cut my teeth on this approach, sitting around that Jeffka table in 1983. There have been times in my own career when I have given advice that was in season. In other words, when my recommendations were broadly in line with the political ambitions of the government and times when it was out of season. I believe it's important in both situations to be as independent as possible. To be an effective advisor, you need to remain credible, even under pressure. When I set out to determine minimum wages as chair of the former Australian Fair Pay Commission, I was left in no doubt as to the government's view on the matter, thanks to a phone call from the then minister's chief of staff. Of course, there was no direction from the minister, just a reinforcement of the views already put to the commission in writing. I said I appreciated the call and noted that I was as pleased to hear the government's views as I was those of any other interested party. I also reminded my caller of the independence of the commission and the fact that the decision would be made by my fellow commissioners and me acting independently. Well, there was a bit of huffing and puffing from the other end of the phone, but I managed to get my point across. As it turns out, our decision in that case was probably not exactly what the minister had hoped for. There have been other times when the opposite was true. And in those cases, I think it's probably even more important to safeguard your independence. If it ever happens that your advice appears to be convenient for the government, you're certainly going to face more questions than usual from journalists and members of the public. As you might expect, the practice of actually doing this isn't always black and white. There is a bit of nuance to it. There will be times when you need to use your judgment to choose the right moment to deliver advice or perhaps a particular policy recommendation. If you don't consider the context in which your advice will be received, you run the risk of being ignored simply for bad timing's sake, not for any demerit of your advice. The goal is to be tactful and sensible enough to have some influence without ever pandering to expediency. For all his talent, I expect it still took Ted years to perfect this art. The world we live in is one where most calculations can be done by a machine. And people generally believe that where machines aren't yet sophisticated enough to handle more qualitative problems, they soon will be. Even now, my colleagues and I on the Reserve Bank Board benefit from computer analysis of the optimal level of the cash interest rate. It begs the question why we just don't let the machine decide the cash rate, rather than having nine people ponder this question each month. Why not just leave it to the computer? The answer to this question is that computers, for the time being at least, are not sophisticated enough to apply human judgment to a range of considerations that can't be quantified. The numbers need to be tested against people's experience and emotions. There's also a question of legitimacy in the eyes of the public who are asked to have confidence in the dispassionate and unbiased nature of the decision-making process. 
it's easier to hold people to account publicly for their perceived biases and conflicts of interest than it is machines whose algorithmic bias may be much harder to expose. There's yet another reason, well understood it would appear by whoever drafted the Reserve Bank Act. Section 10 of the Act spells out the bank's charter. As this audience will immediately recognize, the RBA board is enjoined to exercise the bank's powers so as best to contribute to the stability of the currency and the maintenance of full employment in Australia. But there's a third objective, which is sometimes overlooked. The economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. Just how could a machine calculate such a subjective notion? Indeed, we know from economic theory that the attempt to calculate cardinal measures of welfare is a fraught exercise. The Act points the way forward when it specifies that the assessment of what best contributes to the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia is, and I quote, in the opinion of the board. So we're back to, human, to the human dimension of economic policymaking. In the end, it's human judgment and not the numbers alone that matters. I have observed this process right up close during the policy response to the current COVID-19 pandemic. The bank, as you know, has taken monetary policy into unconventional territory. Even the trained economists on the board, including me, have never seen these circumstances before, uh, and at least in my case, never thought that I would. The board's decisions have been very much focused on the third objective of securing the economic prosperity and welfare of the Australian people, given that the chances of meeting the bank's inflation target and the associated level of unemployment are remote in the near term. In these circumstances, the human judgment of people seated around that board table, as informed by expert advisors, drives economic policymaking. The key ingredients have been the most reliable and most timely data that can be brought to bear. The willingness of experts to canvas a range of policy options and offer a dispassionate assessment of their respective strengths and weaknesses. And sufficient time to deliberate on the essential issues and resolve a course of action. Ted didn't live to see it, but he would have recognized instinctively that a clear-eyed focus on people's welfare is what counts, and most especially when the going gets tough. History will judge how well we RBA board members have met this mark. Economists know that almost every change in public policy produces both winners and losers. The opportunity for everyone to be made better off and nobody worse off is extremely rare. For the most part, we're looking for changes that result in a net gain for the community, in which the losers can be fairly compensated. But what the numbers don't tell you are the myriad ways in which people can be affected by public policy decisions, some of which have little to do with dollars and cents. One of my early forays into public policy was as chair of what was then called the Metropolitan Hospitals Planning Board. 
This was a committee set up to review Melbourne's public hospital network. Among other things, this board recommended to the Kennett government in the mid-1990s that the former Infectious Diseases Hospital at Fairfield be closed. Advice the government subsequently accepted. The Fairfield Hospital had been established in the 1920s to deal with the aftermath of the Spanish flu epidemic and saw service over subsequent decades in dealing with outbreaks of diphtheria, poliomyelitis, and more recently, HIV AIDS. I should note that of all the things said and written about the response to the current COVID-19 pandemic, no one has suggested that the closure of the Fairfield Hospital was a mistake. Then as now, the best medical advice is that infectious diseases be treated in an appropriately isolated ward of, major, of a major tertiary hospital and not in dedicated facilities. Uh, the reason is that complications arising from an infectious disease require the attention of specialist physicians, more commonly found working in general hospitals. People unfortunate enough to catch an infectious disease have the best chance of survival in a general hospital setting. On paper, this makes good sense. What I found in practice was that the strongest objections to closing the hospital came from people who had been diagnosed with HIV AIDS or whose loved ones had been. This was in the mid 1990s, as I say, before effective treatments for HIV were widespread. These patients were being cared for at the Fairfield Hospital right up to the end of their lives. The first bridge we crossed in our discussions with them was to explain that the best treatment available would be found in a general hospital. But that wasn't the only thing going on, as I discovered. Continuing the dialogue with the affected community led me to the nub of their objection. They fully accepted that better treatment might be available in a general hospital setting, and that a separate infectious diseases hospital was no longer necessary or desirable. Their objection to closing Fairfield was that the ashes of their deceased loved ones had been buried in the hospital's memorial garden. As it turned out, my involvement with the church meant that I knew something about the proper and improper ways of relocating memorial gardens. As soon as it was clear that people's dignity and privacy could be respected by relocating the memorial garden in an acceptable way, their objections to the hospital's closure fell away. The recommendation to make such arrangements was included in the final report as part of the wider proposal to close the hospital. Of course, I hadn't been asked to advise the government on relocating memorial gardens. I was there to make recommendations about hospital efficiency based on data and economic analysis. But there's a gap between theory and reality. And in that gap, even the best ideas come up against what it means to be human. In this case, the friction between theory and the real world had nothing to do with economics. It was about human compassion. Love, actually. Understanding that difference can help you determine which theories are more likely to work as a matter of practical policymaking. The goal of good economic policy 
is to improve the welfare of the community. It's therefore essential to understand how dimensions of policy outcomes beyond the narrowly material are likely to affect how people respond, especially what they're likely to say to their governments. Looking at the data alone gives you a black and white view of the situation. When you add the human dimension, things all of a sudden become technicolor. You see nuances you might not have appreciated before. You go back, you check certain details, you follow up new lines of inquiry. In that sense, adding the human dimension helps you make better decisions. Though it's important not to go too far down that path. At the end of the day, it will still be the data that tell the story, not anecdotal evidence, let alone outbursts of emotion. What the human dimension will do is help you understand how people are likely to respond, at least initially, to otherwise rational policy proposals. During the competition policy review, my co-panelists and I held more than 150 public meetings to discuss the impact of various proposals that were on the table. These meetings were not where the rigorous economic analysis and intellectual debate occurred. Their purpose was to assure the community that we sought to understand the human consequences of decisions that might look good on paper. At one of these meetings, the owner of a small family supermarket complained about the impact the big chains were having on her business. I asked her if she wanted the review to recommend to the government that it pass a law forbidding Coles and Woolworths from opening stores near smaller supermarkets like hers. After a moment's thought, she replied, no, I can't ask you to do that. I just want you to sit there and hear me say it sucks. You probably won't come across that phrase in any of the textbooks, but that's how policy often translates into the lives of ordinary people. It sucks. It's going to destroy my business. It's going to take away my retirement savings. How will I ever find another job? It isn't enough to sit with your professional colleagues looking at the numbers to come up with the perfect policy, no matter how smart or talented or dedicated you all are. It's also about persuading people that the policy you come up with is in the best interests of the community, even if it results in a negative outcome for some people. How do you do that? You look people in the eye, show them you understand the human costs involved and tell them why you think it still makes sense. This is the human dimension of good economic policy making. The ascendancy of social media makes the human approach even more important. How easy is it to demonize policy proposals and their advocates in a social media campaign where people never actually meet face to face? How much easier is it to publish an inflammatory tweet than to stand up in a public meeting and address people directly? with your concerns or objections. When I was setting minimum wages, I made it my business to meet and interview unemployed people to better inform myself about their circumstances and options. I learned a great deal about hardship and the dignity of people's lives. I was attacked in the media for being out of touch with the life experience of the low paid and the unemployed. In response, I related lessons I'd learned from these interviews 
and then asked my accusers when they had last sat down to talk with people who were unemployed or low pay. Curiously enough, I received no reply. There's one other respect in which the human dimension of economic policymaking comes to the fore. Even though economics started out as a branch of moral philosophy, its evolution into a social science in the 20th century saw the discipline drift away from its ethical moorings. Modern economics holds itself out as value-free and objective. Of course, people are assumed to have preferences, but how those preferences are formed, whether they are moral or not, are no longer questions addressed by economists. We remember and admire Adam Smith's wealth of nations, but we seem to have forgotten his equally influential theory of moral sentiments. Even though economists prefer to stick with objective analysis and issue moral judgments, most other people do not. It might occur to economists to describe certain behavior as rational, but most other people prefer to describe it as simply wrong. To put matters differently, Adam Smith's admiration of market exchange as an engine of the wealth of nations did not preclude him from condemning certain market outcomes as immoral. For example, anti-competitive market conduct, which he described as, quote, a conspiracy against the public. Rising income inequality, which he lamented as releasing the rich from the need to behave morally in order to earn the esteem of others. And even the much vaunted specialization of labor in production. Smith recognized could lead production line workers to become, and I quote, ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become, unquote. Indeed, Smith seemed to be more clear-sighted about the limitations of commerce or the need for foundations of justice and morality to restrain otherwise unrestrained commercial activity than many of his modern disciples. Economists can be shocked or at least surprised when deregulating markets gives rise to immoral, albeit efficient, outcomes. I count myself among those policymakers who expected more of deregulated markets only to be disappointed. Having championed disclosure as a strong deterrent to unethical behavior in financial markets, as a member of the Wallace Inquiry in the mid-1990s, I was dismayed to witness the litany of shameful behavior uncovered by the Hain Royal Commission. Had I thought more about the need for strong ethical foundations, what Justice Hain referred to as values and culture, I might have been more circumspect about the need for ongoing regulation. Good economic policymaking should not underestimate the power of incentives to override moral and ethical restraint. Or perhaps more to the point, it should not assume that moral or ethical restraint will temper economic incentives without first inquiring whether such restraint is embedded in values and culture. Regulation is a poor substitute for culturally embedded moral restraint. But when the latter is non-existent, regulation may be necessary to secure the public interest against the worst excesses of self-serving behavior by those in positions of trust. 
Well, as much to my surprise as anyone else's, I've been involved in public policy making now for more than 40 years. Over that time, I've seen my profession become more and more focused on technical analysis, if you like, on the science of economics. What I've been speaking to you about tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is the craft of economics, the feel of it in your hands, so to speak. I chose it as the theme of my remarks tonight because craftsmanship in policymaking is something Ted Evans was famous for. He didn't just know how to formulate good policy in principle. He knew how to bring sufficient worldliness to his advice, to give his ministers confidence to face the public. In my own efforts at giving good policy advice, I've always welcomed the opportunity to consult with the public. It's a great discipline on those who would meddle in other people's lives for the sake of improving aggregate economic welfare to sit down and listen Listen to them tell you how they feel about it. Apart from anything else, you learn so much about what really matters for people. Whether it's the level of minimum wages, the level of interest rates, how banks are supervised, where you can open a pharmacy, when you can open a supermarket, or where you can get treated for an infectious disease. These things are all, they all matter for people's lives. That's what makes economics so fascinating. It's also why, at the very least, we should ask people what they think. No one should be surprised that an economist should worry about the human dimension of his craft. Social science it may be, but economics started out as moral philosophy. Our quest to raise community welfare cannot be divorced from its foundation in a moral calculus. More to the point, if it is divorced from its moral foundations, then economic policymaking is more likely to diminish than enhance economic welfare. Formulating good economic policy presupposes some agreement on what constitutes the good, or at least acknowledges whether such an agreement is strongly inculcated in the culture of communities or organizations. While it's certainly possible to divorce the mechanical side of economics from its moral foundation, this is not the route to good economic policymaking. If our aim is to improve people's lives, we must embrace the craft along with the science of economics and place the human dimension of economic policymaking at the heart of everything we do. Thank you. This was Economics Supplied On Demand, brought to you by the Economic Society of Australia, discussing relevant economic concepts of the time. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to or get involved in the economic debate. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe and leave us a review of the podcast and then head to our website to become a member. For our upcoming events and information on how to get involved, follow us on social media by searching Economic Society of Australia or using the links on our website at esawa.org.au. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or are interested in talking to us, get in touch via our website. This episode was produced and edited by John White. Please note the views expressed are those of the individuals. They do not reflect the views of the Economic Society of Australia, its members or any associated organisation.